This snippet comes from episode 104 of Activist MMT with Warren Mosler, where he answers patron questions at around the three-minute mark of the interview proper. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Uh, let's move on to patron questions, if I may. Um, and let's just go straight through. Uh, you, you gave me a very nice surprise where you responded very quickly with the answers. I was not expecting yeah. that. It was pretty cool. Um, so let's just go straight through. I'm going to, let's, let's, uh, and you, you know, I assume you have your document or your, or your email where you can kind of, I, remind I don't, but you, but you do, you, you, have, you can even answer it for me. Okay. Well, there you go. I don't even need you anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, all right. So, all right. So the first one is from Nathan Becker and I just interviewed him. It's a written, it's my first written interview, which is kind of cool. I, I look forward to releasing that. Um, he is all on board MMT. He is skeptical about, he is, he disagrees on one element and this is his question to address that. Um, Nathan says, while it is true that the federal government is a net interest payer and higher interest rates would lead to the government paying more in interest income, isn't it also true that the majority of Americans do not hold government debt as an asset that would earn them higher income, but hold mortgages and other debt instead, which have a negative impact with higher interest rates? I hope you got that because I didn't. Yeah. So, would, so wouldn't higher interest rates be less inflationary given these circumstances in the U.S.? What would yeah. your... What would be your recommendation for controlling inflation while also stimulating economic growth in such a situation? Yeah. Well, look, one thing I didn't put in the written answer is that every central bank I've been dealing with has writes papers on this, you know, publishes papers on this all the time. And, you know, they send it out to 20 different universities and they publish the one that they think best suits their narrative which is at higher rates fight inflation. And, and you'll see these papers come out from the Fed that says, well, if we raise interest rates 1%, that'll bring down the rate of inflation by one-tenth of a percent with a four-year lag. <laughs> okay. So first of all, they're not showing a whole lot with their own and studies. And we won't do anything between now and then, we promise. Yeah. You know, it's across two fiscal cycles and they've had all kinds of other things happen. And the other 19 papers didn't find that. You know, the one they published is the one that gave them the best result, right? Mm -hmm. So this is probably the one that fudged the data a little bit to, so they could get published. Not, not that, you know, that doesn't happen. We saw it happen with Rogoff and Reinhardt, right? Um, the, grad, the grad student discovered they fudged the data. Anyway, so uh, to show that 90% was a barrier. Well, it's it's mm -hmm. not, obviously. Well, anyway, um, and so you can't find a central bank study that shows a good correlation with a country with floating exchange rates, you know, without some kind of extraordinary circumstances. Now, when I first started at this savings bank, there was a rate cap of 5% or five and a quarter. We could not pay more than that for deposits by law. So that when rates were raised to like 8%, all our depositors took all their money out. And we couldn't borrow in the wholesale market, so now we couldn't make mortgages anymore. And in fact, we were at, we were stuck, you know, and, and we had a huge SNL crisis back then. All these banks went insolvent because they couldn't replace those deposits. Okay, so that was a specific institutional structure, and under that structure, yes, once rates were raised above five percent, you were going to slow the economy down because you were going to put all the SNLs out of business. They weren't going to be able to make mortgages. Housing was going to market was going to crash, and Banks, and there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies. 
Okay, well, number one, we don't have that institutional structure anymore. So I'm not saying there isn't some institutional structures that we could put in place to cause that effect to be there. But I don't think there's been one since they repealed that cap on what SNLs could pay for savings. At least nothing, nothing material. And none of the studies can find it. Okay, so... You know, if you're saying that because you believe it to be the case, show me a study or show me some evidence that, you know, it's actually, you know, it actually works that way. And then I'll go back to Richard Warner's uh, paper that showed it doesn't work that way. It works the other way, the way I've been saying. So, um, and I'm not making the case that it's a powerful, strong effect. I'm just saying they got it backwards, enough backwards so that they, they shouldn't be considering rate increases to fight inflation with all the evidence and theory, as I see it, um, is shows the opposite, that the higher rates cause inflation. Okay. And so, yeah. so you say, he, what you said in particular yeah. to response to this was households are net savers, and you have a, yes. a, a graph showing that from Fred. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, de- the public debt is $28 trillion, right? So so somebody's a net, the net sa- all the net savings adds to $28 trillion. And households are a part of that, a large part of it. I've got the graphs. And businesses and everybody else is, is a the economy is twenty eight trillion in net savings, and it's divided among all the sectors. Not that every single breakdown of every minute sector is a net saver, but uh, that's that's the total at the macro level. The economy is a net saver of twenty eight trillion. It's a lot. And so, when the Fed raises rates, they do it by paying interest, more interest than they were paying if they're raising rates to those 28 trillion. And in the first instance, that's an increase in government deficit spending. It's a fiscal transfer. I call it basic income for people who already have money. You're just paying out money, you know, regularly to people who already have it, pro rata to how much they have. It's highly regressive. And it doesn't all get spent, but some of it does. And to make the case that that's somehow contractionary and fights inflation is, it's it's a long shot. You know, I'd say the burden of proof is on you to show some data or something that shows that these propensities to save can offset that big of an effect from the net interest payments. Hmm. Okay. Um, he he agrees with Roger Mal- Roger Mitchell's view. Roger Malcolm Mitchell, I forget it's Roger Mitchell, yeah. Uh, yeah. Myth Fighter. Um, that the Fed's target rate is maintained by interest rate control, which controls the demand for and purchasing power of U.S. dollars. Increasing demand for dollars reduces inflation. Decreasing demand encourages inflation. This, yeah. um, and then you say, so oh, you can just respond to that. So that that's that's Roger's view, and that's what Nathan agrees with. And you, you can go ahead. So so when they say increasing demand for dollars, okay, what is what does that actually mean? You know they. they that's a very casual way to express it. And I think what they mean is it increases people's desire to borrow. Okay. But I, but he's not here to answer it because there is no, nothing per se with demand for dollars, whatever that means. Does it mean demand to sell yen and buy dollars? Is he talking about foreign exchange? Is he talking about, you know, the desire to borrow, to, to go into debt, which which is, is you know, borrowing to spend uh, is a, an inflationary bias? So I'm not I'm not sure how he's using it here, but they're using it very casually. And a lot of times people use casual language and then, you know, jump from there into some conclusion that's, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't necessarily follow from anything other than extremely casual language that's undefined, you know, not sure. defined. Sure. 
So if you read that sentence again, I'll point out the casual language. Okay. Um, sure, I got this. Okay. The Fed's target rate of inflation is maintained by interest rate control, which controls okay, demand. Wait interest rate control. So what they do is they pay interest on excess reserves. They pay a support rate. And that's and their treasury securities also. But right now, at the margin, is the support rate they're paying. So by paying interest on that, that becomes the bank's cost of funds. And then the bank's will land at a markup over that and they'll pay something less than that for savings. So that, so they are setting, as a monopolist, they are setting the policy rate. So you can call that control, but they're just setting a rate. They have to. If they don't pay interest on reserves, the rate goes to zero. So if they want a rate higher than the zero, they have to pay it. And right now, it's only marginally higher than zero. I think it's like 0.15%. Mm-hmm. So right now, they're controlling it for all practical purposes at zero in that they're not paying support. Go ahead. Okay. Fed's target rate of inflation is maintained by interest rate control, which controls the demand oh, okay. for stop, and purchase. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the target rate of inflation is maintained under the theory that higher rates will cause inflation to go down and lower rates cause inflation to go up. Now, after 10 years of zero rates without inflation going up, and with all their forecasts that inflation should have gone up, they're all saying, and I mean, Bank of Japan, you know, European Central Bank, that their models are broken. Okay, what does that mean? It means that <laughs> that, that theory isn't working. Okay, their models say that if they lower rates to zero, then inflation will go up to 2%, and it hadn't done it for 10 years. So uh, it hadn't done it for 30 years in Japan. And even in Japan, you know what they say, well, we just need a little more time. It's like, okay. But, then, <laughs> but they also say their models are broken. So go ahead. Uh which controls yeah. the demand for and purchasing power of U.S. dollars. Okay, so so the purchasing power of is the, the price level, right? So it controls the price level, which they mean controls inflation, I guess. It controls the changes in the price level. Okay, so these changes in interest rates control changes in the price level. And what did you say just before that? Which controls the demand for and purchasing power yeah, of. Yeah, so the demand for, that's the one that I'm a little bit hung up on. The demand for dollars and the purchasing power of dollars, you know, they're somehow linking those, and it would have to be under some uh, one of many possible definitions that are used casually for the word demand for dollars. But go ahead, I'll, I'll, I won't, you know, <laughs> it's fine. I won't, I, won't, I won't linger on that or pin them to that. Okay, increasing the demand for dollars reduces inflation, decreasing the okay. demand okay. for so, dollars encourages inflation. So they, they say increasing the demand for dollars, so that must. What the Fed's trying to do is increase, or what they do is they increase interest rates by paying a higher support rate. They, if they change interest on reserves from 0.15 to 1.5, then the rate goes to 1.5. Now, they, did they change the demand for dollars when they did that? Or did, or did changing the demand for dollars, whatever that means, cause that to happen? No, it's caused by a vote at the Fed. At the end of each meeting, they have a vote. Should this rate be higher, lower, or should, you know, leave it unchanged? Hmm. And they've been voting unchanged. And so it stays unchanged. If they voted higher, it goes higher. Now, if the operations people at the Fed, all they will do is announce that we're paying a higher support rate. It's not like, okay, we'll change the demand for dollars and that will cause the support rate to go up. So the causation has to be that the support rate itself would then change this demand for dollars. So I think they've got that backwards in the question, right? Okay. Okay. All right, so we'll, we'll leave that one. I, you have your yeah. answer there. But you and, can see uh, the problem. You can see the problem answering the question because it's it's convoluted to begin with. 
and it's not wrong, but it's it's kind of got a confused sequence to it, okay. an implied cause and effect and everything else that makes it kind of difficult to answer without first sorting all that out. Okay. Okay. With your permission, I'll just, yeah. your answers, if it's okay, with your permission, I'll release this, uh, this okay. document that you sent me with, so people can see for themselves. Yep. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, so, all right. Next one, Susan. There you go. Okay. Susan Eldridge. Um, if we have to tax to give value to the U.S. dollar, what is the best way to ensure everyone shares this tax obligation fairly? 